everyone. Hopefully this works. Um, going live now. Welcome back. It's Thursday, September 24th, 2020. Uh, kind of crazy that we've been streaming here for six months now. Uh, if you had asked me seven months ago if I would stream on the internet, the answer would have been a hard no. Um, kind of crazy, kind of crazy. So um, yeah, had a little bit of technical difficulties. For some reason, YouTube's like streaming studio has changed on me. So uh, it used to be like I could open up and schedule a stream uh, and then I can like, I could physically set or I could through the button press go live. But now it's kind of like once I start streaming from OBS to YouTube, um, it just kind of goes live. But anyway, neither here nor there. Happy, uh, happy week. Happy Thursday. Hopefully you all have been good. Um, yeah, so, you know, going to start kind of slow. I'm sure the, uh, technical difficulties, people are going to start trickling in, but yeah, kind of crazy day. Um, maybe I'll switch to this. Hold on NASDAQ. So here I am again, obviously here in my, my, uh, let's see if I can move this thing. Yep. Okay, cool. So just kind of looking at the market data. Um, yes, we are kind of in the middle and in the midst of a potential market correction. If you kind of look at the NASDAQ over the last three months, we hit peak at, you know, just about $12,000 on the NASDAQ. And, um, you know, now we're at 10,672 and kind of a similar chart on the S&P 500. So the S&P is down, you know, about, they're both down about 10% or so. So just kind of flirting with correction territory. Um, for me, if you kind of zoom out, it's a little bit, uh, if you look out and you zoom out in the S and P 500, basically we're basically where we were peaked at before the pandemic hit, uh, which is kind of crazy. So, you know, can it get worse? Oh yes, absolutely. It can get much worse. That's, that's just my opinion. Uh, I, I pulled up some thing, uh, you know, something today on one of my YouTube videos, uh, forward price to earnings on the S&P are still pretty not great. Um, so, you know, I would, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough market out there. And that's why I think that's why, you know, I'll pull this up. Don't tell on me, but I'll show you how to do it. You got our Yardeni. They do really, you know, great free sort of uh, charts here. And so if I pull up kind of S&P 500 forward, um, again, this is all your Denny. It's not mine. I don't know if I'm able to republish, but it's all publicly on their site, but they kind of do their own uh, S&P 500 uh, forward price to earnings analyses. And so, yeah, we're like right here, the red line is the S&P 500 index and forward price to earnings. So yeah, right here, we're according to them on the forward, we're somewhere in that like 22, 23 times forward price to earnings, which is kind of only the last time we saw valuations like that uh, was during the tech bubble after which, you know, we saw quite a bit of decline. So the difference between then and now, I think, and again, I wasn't really truly an adult then uh, with all the knowledge that I have now and the experience. Um, I would say this time around, we see an enormous bifurcation and separation um, of sectors and certain companies are just wildly overvalued. The mega cap growth tech stocks, um, you know, some of them, not all of them, 
are pulling up the index and then you have these like financials, the green, the green line, uh, really weighing down the index and healthcare is weighing down the index, which is kind of crazy. Um, and then you see kind of value, value stocks really weighing down the index. Um, but you see kind of the hypey ones, like I'll show you which ones have spiked really. Um, let's see. Yeah, you see this blue line that's consumer discretionary. So, you know, again, this is probably two factored. One factor is probably some of the, you know, hypier stocks that are in the consumer discretionary have gotten really like overbought. Uh, but the other one is also that like some of the consumer discretionary like clothing, uh, they're going to see their earnings and the price to earnings really tank. And maybe the stock price really hasn't moved much. So there's kind of two two sides of that coins, a double-sided, uh, you know, double-sided blade there. So, but anyway, like I think you'll, you'll see the spikes and you'll see, I'll show you it here in a second. Um, let's see, there's a big chart book. It's financials, healthcare, industrials, it. So you'll see here application software really running away from the, uh, the pack in it, right? You're talking about 50 times forward priced earnings on average. So again, I think this is the time we got to pick our battles. We pick the stocks. I don't buy, I don't own ETFs anymore. I think the ETFs, right? Like meaning VOO or SPY, stuff like that. I think the stock market as a whole, I don't, I can't predict what it's going to do. Um, I also, obviously I can't predict anything. I've just, you know, have these educated theses and they've worked out so well so far through this kind of tumultuous time as a really medium to long-term investor type of mindset. Again, I am not a Davy day trader if you haven't noticed that already. Um, so ETFs to me, they still are subject to, right, going back to that original chart, they're still subject to being overall having an inflate, inflated valuation as compared to the tech bubble and in the previous 20 years. That being said, I think we can find really good stocks. And those of you that are Roke members, thank you so much. You all know, um, know I love you for the support and you can always talk to me on there, even though, if, you know, it's, it's within a week, hopefully I can respond. And, um, you, you know, uh, you'll know, like we have a handful of stocks. I mean, by a handful, I think there's like 10 on the, on the rogue board that, that are really like Justin buys. Um, and you know, those are the ones that I want to hold through. And generally those are the ones that I feel very comfortable owning for multiple decades or at least one decade. And whatever Mr. Market quotes at me, I'm just willing to buy more. And for some of you that maybe don't, have a, a job right now or are in school, uh, you'll have to manage your money a little differently for me because, you know, the way I construct that, that chart here, I'll put myself back on the way I construct that like target asset allocations, uh, pie chart is I really, um, I kind of assume, so 25% cash allocation at the peak when we were peaking. And I was like, we need to we need a lot of cash. So here's 25, have a quarter of your pie chart in cash. Honestly, like, and again, I should have clarified this. There's only so many hours in the day. I should have clarified this back then. Uh, if you don't have an income, you might want to be more conservative with your cash stores, right? Just because, I mean, I would assume you should have a three to six month kind of 
emergency fund at least. I mean, a lot of pe- some people uh, promote nine-month emergency fund. But also from further than that, right, like in your equity portfolio, I had taken our equity portfolio up to 35% target cash. So 25% of your total investment, 35% of your equity portfolio. Um, but if, again, maybe, hopefully, I know, I think a lot of you did, um, you, you saw my conservatism and you went even more conservative, which I, I doubt that's great, right? Because we saw at least a 10% drawdown on the stock market. So now you're in great shape to pick up the companies you love at a 10% lower price. It's a, it's a 10% coupon right now, guys, from, you know, peak. Uh, and yeah, so I would say, are we done with this correction? If I were to guess, we're going to see high volatility. So you can see snapbacks up, snapbacks down. But my bias is over the next year or maybe over the next six months and maybe over the next three months. I think we'll see a correction closer to a 20% than a 10%. And that's just because I'm looking at these valuations and despite all the money printing and devaluation of the dollar, all that stuff, I just think fair market valuations shouldn't be here as a whole. So you'll see equity drawdowns uh, at least in a certain certain overhyped up sectors. And you've kind of seen, you've seen sell-offs in kind of the SPACy stocks, right? I mean, you saw FMCI trading down. You saw obviously Nikola for different reasons, right? They potentially could be a fraud. Um, oh man, that feels good, doesn't it? Doesn't it? For those of you that have stuck with me since the Nikola days when I was getting a bunch of hype, or sorry, a bunch of hate, thank you so much. Hopefully you feel like I'm not an idiot at this point. Um, so anyway, cool. Um, yeah, so what's up, guys? Uh, let's, let, me, let me hit my notes here. So again, thanks so much for being here. I've been releasing a lot more videos. Uh, I think Justin Birnbaum and I are a little bit getting into a groove. We, we're doing the newsletter early in the morning. Uh, we, we publish and then kind of through my lunchtime, I'm able to just do these like a little bit more shorter, casual videos and just kind of immediately publish them with very little to no editing using Streamlabs. So hopefully that's okay. And that's good. And please go watch them if, if you're interested. Um, yeah, tonight's brought, brought to you just like all my videos brought to you by Fundrise, which is honestly my favorite way to invest in solid diversified private real estate, uh, without having to own and manage your own properties, uh, really low minimums. And you can start out with like 500 bucks. And if you're like me and kind of worried about, you know, all the money printing and devaluation of the dollar, private high yield real estate is kind of a great way to diversify your assets wisely, especially through a private vehicle where they kind of are beholden to providing investors, at least a a pretty good, hopefully outsized return, especially on a risk reward basis. Um, I do want to call out something about uh, real estate that I saw here, and I'll pull up the Wall Street Journal article that I that I read this week. Hold on, let me go to desktop. Cool. If I go to economy, I think it was okay. Well, there's some stuff about housing here, and. wanted to pull this up for you. Anyway, um, let's see. 
So basically what I'm reading is that, um, uh, anyway, the real estate market is really, really strong. So basically you have a ton of, uh, I don't know, home buyers really in the market still. And to me, that's because you have all these middle and upper class people that haven't lost their jobs and they're just kind of zooming. Uh, but then you have like the lowest amount of, of house inventory. So prices of homes are really skyrocketing. So as it pertains to private real estate, I think uh, commercial is really the way, way, the way to go right now. And we're putting pause on all our um, real estate purchases here in Nashville. I mean, you know, we're going to stay steady at what, 15 properties here. And I feel hesitant to buy residential real estate in this market. So if any of you own real estate rental properties, I think you should maybe take a look at this as well. Uh, if I could find the article for the life of me, if you just give me a second here. Um, okay, it's called Americans Want Homes, but... There it is. Wall Street Journal article. Okay. So this is what I'm worried about. Americans want homes, but there have rarely been fewer for sale. Shortage of homes for sale means prices are being pushed higher and higher, straining buyers' budgets. We are seeing here now more million-dollar homes in the 36th largest MSA here in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, I, I mean, it seemed to have popped like 20% since the start of COVID. So again, I don't. Th the goal is to buy low, sell high, not buy high, sell low. So... Um, honestly, Fundrise might be one of the best, Fundrise or maybe some of the distressed REITs or something, but really just, I mean, there are really limited options to really getting good deals in the real estate market, especially on the residential side. I think the place to play is kind of the commercial side, which is, again, you either buy a public, publicly traded REIT, which I'm not a, as big a fan of, or you go Fundrise or I know Fundrise has a couple other competitors. So anyway, it's just like kind of my, my weekly view on real estate. Um, oh, for those of you that are joining us for the first time, uh, don't forget to sign up for Morning Sense, which is our daily newsletter. So I'll refer to it quite a bit. Um, and uh, also we do $30 giveaways every episode. So make sure to enter through the link in the description. Um, and if you're not watching this live, uh, we still do a weekly $100 keyword giveaway. So you can enter anytime this week to be picked next week. For, so for next week, it'd be you know October October 1st. So that's cool. Um, I got, I have to pick the winner from last week for the weekly hundred dollar raffle. So let me go to my dashboard, pick a winner. Owen L. Owen L. You won a hundred bucks. Uh, so hundred bucks coming your way after this episode. Uh, funny story. My, my PayPal Venmo got locked for some reason. And so it was kind of a, arduous process to get unlocked. It was kind of crazy and took like a week, but it's all working now. I'll send you the money ASAP. So cool. Um, yeah. And for those of you responding about the homes, like Simon uh, talking about real estate. Yes. Homes are great assets to, to hold when markets are shaky. I agree. Um, it's also because you're not having Mr. Market really like quote at you in real time because they're illiquid assets. But I will say when you see home prices at frothy prices, all I'm saying is uh, now might not be the best time to buy your own private uh, rental piece of real estate. Uh, if you own them already, yeah, of course, just hold through. Like there's no reason not, to, like you're not gonna, unless you really wanna take advantage of like P 
peaking prices. Maybe you sell in pandemic, but it just sounds like a, a total hassle for, in my opinion. Um, Cool. And if you, uh, again, if you're first joining us, I take voicemail questions during, during the session. So, um, if you call the number in the description, uh, the number is, the number is 615-412-9594. So if you call that, uh, call that number and leave, Oh, I already have a couple, uh, four, uh, four voicemails. Okay, cool. Yeah. And Bas uh, Basil, yes. The, Fundrise is a sponsor. He's their only sponsor. I reached out to them. Uh, I don't, I don't necessarily, I'm not in this for sponsorship or anything. It's just, um, they are absolutely a product that I've used in the past. They first started a long time ago when I was still on wall street as they used to syndicate individual deals. So you were able to kind of log in and buy individual commercial real estate deals that were getting either renovated or construction and stuff like that. And then they kind of pivoted to this like E-REIT. So they have a big real estate private equity team that kind of does all that work for you and diversifies for you. So it's a little bit closer to now a true to form REIT. Um, but yeah, I've been a fan of them for a long time. So, um, uh, Mark, I do not have 1200 members on Roic. A lot of people churn. I don't, how do you, how do you see that I have 1200 members on Roic? I do not. This is still a, 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 a labor of, what do you call it? Labor of love. Um, comes out of my day job as a CFO. Uh, just the kind of, the support that you all really, really uh, show me on Roic really helps uh, kind of maintain all this, you know, maintain this new computer that I have to, I had to buy for streaming and just maintain like all the hosting and stuff like that. And, you know, uh, Justin, you know, we help, it helps pay Justin to, uh, Justin Birnbaum, that's what I, who I'm referring to, to help kind of churn out all these newsletters. So again, again, we're trying to really hone the newsletter to be the best for us. So the goal, in my opinion, of our community here is kind of leveraging my, you know, Wall Street finance investing training and experience and just kind of, you know, philosophy uh, and translating today's kind of crazy news into actionable investing insights and guidance again, but my opinion is not advice still. Um, and potentially like if we can grow this and eventually get other kind of really top tier analysts on board, I'm all ears. Um, hedge fund Henry is a good friend of mine and he, you know, arguably might be a better hedge fund analyst than I am. Uh, and hopefully he'll chip in here at some point, uh, anonymously, obviously and private equity, Pete, you guys met him before. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's the goal. So if you ever have any, uh, any pieces of feedback on the newsletter, we really, we really, really, really appreciate it. So just respond to the newsletter. If you can respond to Justin Birnbaum or me, uh, if, if you want, if you're saying, Oh, you're going too deep into these stories or you want to, I want more stories and less depth, or I, I like how, like it, how it is more of this, less of this really appreciate that. Because again, this is all, this is all just us trying to find something that really helps everyone. So, and it's a free newsletter. So thank you so much. Appreciate it. Um, yeah. And guys, if you're on Gmail, I agree. I didn't even realize that Gmail cuts off the email. So a lot of you might be only reading half, half of the, half the email, but the target allocations are kind of at the bottom. So definitely go check that out. Um, awesome. Cool. It's good. So Matthew, I'll answer some, uh, chat, chat questions up front. Um, yeah, Bob. So merch, we are working on merch. It's just Justin Birnbaum and I, and all of our time is done videos and, and, um, 
the, the newsletter, right? The newsletter is a lot of, a lot of work. Um, so merch is coming. I was at, we were thinking about kind of copying the morning brew. And, uh, like if you just refer like five friends, you get this piece of merch. If you refer like 10 friends, you get this piece of merch, piece of merch, potentially layering in, you know, some grand prizes of like, you can get an app, like a 30 minute, uh, portfolio review with me. Um, but rogue members get chat access to me too. So I know it's not super real time. It's kind of within a week, but, um, yeah, that's that. Um, cool. So, uh, Matthew asking if, you know, my experience on wall street, where was I in investment banking? So yeah, um, graduated Notre Dame in three years in finance, uh, was going to double major in economics. Uh, so after my junior year, went to, uh, leverage finance in Deutsche Bank at 60 Wall Street in New York City, um, which was one of the kind of top leverage finance groups on the street at that point. Not really sure anymore. Uh, then went to a, about, you know, a, they're now a billion and a half dollar uh, fundamental, long biased private equity in the public market style hedge fund. Um, I'll leave them unnamed, a little bit more private. And then after that, I went to Citadel. And then now I'm back, you know, I'm here in Nashville. I've been serving as kind of the CFO, SVP of finance for a, a healthcare technology company called Metalogics. Um, if any of you, if any of my coworkers are on the stream, uh, say hi or don't say hi. You can tease me later. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, it, it's been, it's been a good career and, and uh, I really enjoy effectuating change and creating value on the corporate level because, you know, sometimes when you're managing other people's money, you can kind of stay up here and go skin deep versus when you're really like a, a, a professional in a company, like everything you do every day is really driving value in a business. And really, you really get a better understanding of how value is created. So almost like swinging from East Coast, Wall Street to the middle of the country, both physically, but also philosophically, because, you know, I grew up in California and you know, there, there's a part of me that might be more Silicon Valley than Wall Street. And I, I love talking about product market fit, um, total addressable markets, uh, competitive dynamics, uh, integrations, all that kind of stuff. I like talking about that probably equally or as more than, and, you know, equally or more than, um, you know, what are the free cat, what, what are the um, adjustments to EBITDA on this, uh, widget manufacturer that we're going to take private uh, in order to, you know, meet our credit agreement uh, covenants. Uh, so that's like a private equity thing, right? So, um, yeah, cool. Awesome. Welcome. Yeah, Brian, I should. Um, cool. So, I'm a little scatterbrained today. It's been quite a week, quite a week. Welcome back. It's been great. Uh, hopefully you all have been buying down. Oh, wait, I was going to pull up. Here. Okay, so let me pull up our newsletter for those of you that haven't seen it and are kind of skeptical about signing up. But this is what we, we produce every day. Every morning we wake up really early and do this. And you get kind of my quick reads in real time. You know, you get the news. Um, my opinions, if I have any, today was a pretty big one. I talked about Tesla. 
I talked about uh, the market right now. And then this is my target allocation. This is the, the most up-to-date. So if you remember, I took us to 25% cash, um, which is about 35% of your equity portfolio in cash. And I've reflected us nibbling away at the stocks we like the best down to 20%. And a rotation over the past few weeks into value. And again, I'll, you know, spoiler alert, my favorite value stock right now is probably uh, Albertsons, ticker ACI. So, you know, that's spoiler spoiler alert. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, so again, and I, I, I pined on the, the news from California about them going electric by 2035. You know, I'll re, I'll, let me read you the thing I wrote in, my, in, the, in the newsletter today. So, because sometimes I have to remind myself because like you're in the moment, you're like thinking about it really hard. And then, so this is what I wrote today. Electric vehicles are clearly the future, but keep in mind that complete electrification won't be as fast as some Tesla bulls think. Tesla ambitiously aims to produce 20 million cars per year, which is double the largest double what the largest manufacturers produce now. Furthermore, there are 270 million registered vehicles in the U.S. So even if Tesla can get to twice as big as the biggest auto manufacturers, right, they're only producing, you know, less than 10% of the automobile stock a year, right? So in the U.S., right, and we're talking about globally, um, you know, this is funny, right? Um, I'm drinking out of 100% electric cup. Uh Tesla owners, and I am currently a small one. I put in a flyer for Tesla. Uh, you guys, I'm, I don't know if I'm a Tesla bull again at this price, but I'm not a Tesla hater at this price, especially after battery day. Battery day, I must have been one of the few. Actually, I, I take that back. I think if you're a real Tesla bull, uh, battery day was impressive. It, it, it impressed me. Impressed me. Um, cool. So, And okay, I got distracted with the chat. So, <laughs> um, what was it? Say? Oh, so, Tesla owners, and again, I'm a small one again, need to understand that the further out cash flows are realized, the less they're worth today. So, the longer you have to wait for Tesla to realize substantial cash flows, the lower your average annual return will be. So, I think people don't really understand the valuation piece because it, it is a little bit complex. And again, sometimes like I even have to rethink about it. Um, if I'm not really kind of in the zone about it, um, if you buy, if you buy a company thinking that cash flows are going to three times upside in five years, or you buy a company where, uh, you think the cash flows are going to three times upside in 10 years, right? You'd rather have the five years and the 10 years by far, right? You have double the return. So when you overpay, and you, when you overpay on kind of dollars and dollar growth, so earnings growth, first of all, your upside's lower because you're already elevated, right? And second of all, you know, you have to wait much longer for these earnings to grow into the valuation, the, the, you know, the, the fundamentals to grow into the valuation. When you buy it cheaper and the growth is higher, right? you can probably expect a better return. So that's not to say that Tesla is not a great investment, right? And if I stamped a $450 price target, just no fanboy optimistic price target on it, even as a value value analyst who's rooted in the Warren Buffett way, um, 
that that means that I think it'll go up, right? That means that over the long term, it'll be a relatively good investment. That being said, if you are willing to take the volatility, the heartache, the heartburn, the 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 risk of tweets, the risk of of Elon getting thrown into jail by the SEC, all this, all these risks. So that's what we call equity risk. Tesla's equity risk premium should be high, but everyone fanboys over it. So their equity risk premium is low, but anyway, whatever, like if you're going to go, if you're going to try to price out their equity premium using cap M right, like if you're willing to take on Tesla like risk, then you should be able to take on uh, tattooed chef risk or, um, what, what else is a small hypey stock, right? Like, um, a snowflake risk, but snowflakes overvalued in my opinion. But anyway, so yeah, so that, 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 that's like the concept behind why you don't want to buy too high and you know, the whole, like a, a good investment can be a good investment, but not optimal, right? Because even if you have a hundred thousand dollars, um, and I, t- I talked about this in one of my YouTube videos today. If you have $100,000 to invest, right? You either are diversifying. So you're buying market or, or thematic ETFs. Or you're kind of taking some of that out of ETFs to do what? What are you doing when you, when you say, no, thank you. I don't want to buy an ETF. What you're actually doing is saying, I want to concentrate my bets. Because if you don't want to concentrate your bets, you go to an ETF, right? But when you take your money out of an ETF, you're concentrating. So when you're allocating less to ETFs and more to stocks, you're concentrating flat out, right? So I see some of these, you know, um, maybe not traditionally educated finance or stock influencers. Um, I try not to call, I'm not that. This is just a community here. It's like 180 people here. Um, and like, first of all, I don't think they've ever gone to a class that, you know, finance one-on-one with like the efficient frontier and all this other stuff, but we don't even need to go there. Right. Um, they have like 50 stocks in their portfolio. I'm like, what are you doing, bro? Like it takes me as an, as a true to form hedge fund analyst, I don't think I've ever been a part of a, of a portfolio, you know, we're talking about managing hundreds of millions of dollars here that had more than 30 companies and 30 companies were covered by many, by multiple analysts, right? Not more than just me. The, 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 the max that I've ever really covered has been like 10 to 15 companies. And to me, that's, that's hard. That's hard as crap. Like going deep dive, there's news about Amazon every day. Amazon dropped a ton of cool products, including um, a ring. Did you guys see that? A ring security system that like is a drone, is a mini drone in your house and like buzzes around and into your house and like takes video and then goes back to its dock. Anyway, neither here nor there. We can talk about it later. Um, anyway, th- and then every quarter you get earnings reports and then you get transcripts and then you get news between that. How are you really following 50 companies? So what essentially you've done by, by accumulating 50 to 30 to 50 names or 30 plus names or even 25 plus names is you're just diversifying your bets and like, no offense, I don't trust myself 
to be to have a over seventy five percent hit rate when if I if if you told me to choose 30, 30 names. So for those of you that are like, you know that that are Roic members and help help support the content, and you're on there at on the Roic big board and you're like, yeah, it's not worth it or whatever because Justin only has so many names. Well, that's because I only put names that I'm like pretty confident in and one hour of my time is worth like three hours of uh, an amateur kind of stock analysts time. Um, or maybe more, honestly, like a full day's work. Cause I, I just know what to look at. Cause I've looked at hundreds of companies and hundreds of 10 Ks and Qs. Right. Um, and yeah. And then you can get access to these, I'm sure these other like classes or whatever. And I'm sure they give you these like 50 names. Right. But sometimes it's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Uh, go buy an ETF. Or if, you, if you're like, oh, but I just really want innovative companies. Well, then go buy ARK, ARK Investments, right? Um, then, go, then go buy that. So to me, it's go buy ARK, go buy thematic ETF, or go buy a whole market ETF. Or I'm not buying ETFs right now. I don't own any ETFs because I think the market itself is overvalued. But I think what we're finding is you have these highly overvalued companies and we, we have these companies at reasonable prices, Great companies at reasonable prices, and you have deeply discounted companies. So I don't want to buy all of it. I just want to buy the few companies that are great companies that I want to own for decades at a reasonable price, and then a, and then kind of rotating a little bit into deep value plays like a, like an Albertsons. Albertsons just IPO'd what in June or July, and they're trading under uh, IPO price. Hey man, these investment bankers, I was there. They do a lot of work and they price these IPOs to pop and the market's acting weird. I think I'm banging the table on that one. So yeah, so Den, I've added some price targets on the Rogue Big Board. So the, the the interesting thing about price targets is to me as a personal investor, I think of it as they're businesses you want to own for life or own for multiple decades. And if you look back at Apple from 2005 to now, that, that would have been one. 15 year hold. It doesn't matter what price you're buying at. They're, you're talking about compounding capital at like 30% plus, right? You're talking about game changing stuff. You're talking, talking about monopolistic stuff. That's one I bought for the first time in 2007, six, something like that. Google when they IPO'd. I think I was in middle school. Um, one of those things. And uh, both, I, I've talked about this time and time again, is my, my biggest, as personal investor, my biggest mistake has always been to sell. Sell too early. And sell those, because I've always been very, like I've tried Quibi very early. Like I'm, a, I'm an early adopter and I like, I generally kind of have a good gut of, what's a pretty good product or not. And so, and I've told the story a million times for, for a lot of you, but like I would, I had a Palm pilot and a pocket piece, a compact pocket PC before the iPhone came out. So I knew exactly how game changing it was, even though, you know, a lot of the people at the time was like, Oh, screw that physical buttons. Oh, screw that Blackberry. Oh, screw that Palm pilot. Um, like the experience is just different. And that's something I did feel in Tesla, but Apple never reached Tesla levels of hype. Right. Um, so yeah, a for a Roic app guys, the, the thought process, I know the website, I've been missing some of your DMS and so that's why some of them have been late. Um, 
the website is hosted on WordPress, which is like kind of clunky. My ideal uh, is for us to grow the community enough that we can build an app, a very simplistic app. And I want to hopefully with that, I can t you know take the contributions down and maybe grow the app. It'd be it'd be really fun. And uh, the problem is it's hard to build something with like messaging functionality and like community. So I I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking. I'm definitely thinking about app. Um, oh. Daniel G, you're saying Albertsons was in Wall Street Journal Barron's uh, this weekend as an undervalued stock pick. I guess I was a little early, huh? Hopefully you got in at 13 bucks, 13.50 a share. Um, cool. Uh, big news. I am now, I am now considering Square to go on Square ticker SQ under the big board for a strong growth stock. I think they're trading. You know, Square. I love the story. We don't need to talk about it. it. You know, I think you all know what they do. Um, and, you know, right now at 150 bucks a share, they're trading at 14 and a half times next year's gross profit. And when you compare that against some of these other um, application software companies with really good growth, um, similar types of growth, uh, those, those companies are trading at like 20 plus times forward gross profit. And so... Square is something that I might, I'm, th I'm thinking about adding. It's on the cusp of being added. So I know it's been, I've, I've kind of poo-pooed it a bit because it's highly covered, highly touted. And it, you know, it's like almost kind of undifferentiated, but at the end of the day, I'm in it. I'm in it for the capital compounding. Right. And so just to round up on my last point about um, price targets, I'm never going to have a price target on these capital compounders. Uh, capital compounders are one that if you look at the chart from app, you know, Apple from 2005 to now, um, if you, if you look at Amazon so far and what I think to be just the beginning, um, and if you look at Google, these exponentially growing capital compounders have this, this like virtuous cycle effect where they just feed into their monopolies, which just increase their ROICs. And so it's just like their returns go higher, their investment goes higher, and they just keep doubling and doubling and doubling. So at the end of the day, if you buy it 10% over, overvalued or 15% undervalued or 50% overvalued, if, if a company, if you believe in the company's core monopolistic abilities to keep compounding capital at a 25, 35, 45% ROIC, then you just hold on for dear life. And when you, whenever you have weakness, you kind of add to the position when it's, you know, you just hold it and feel good when it's up and when it's down, like Mr. Market's going to quote things at you all the time and you just kind of add to those positions. And, but to the strong growth stocks, I agree to the value stocks, like an Albertsons, I have a 25 ish, 26 ish dollars price target on it. So if it ever gets kind of in the mid twenties, I would think about selling. It's just kind of, um, Roy, what advice would you give to starting? Are you a starting hedge fund analyst? Cool. Um, yeah, read as many this is again, read as many filings as you can, top to bottom. Not maybe not the accounting rules stuff, but like, and just keep churning out business models. That's my biggest piece of advice because the more business models you um, you look at, the more you just understand about businesses. And so again, like this is nothing revolutionary because, you know, we as, and I talk about this with hedge fund Henry a lot, right? It's like we as humans are designed to take frameworks we've learned in the past and apply them forward. Um, the problem is 
a lot of people aren't good at finding, uh, they're not, they haven't seen a lot of framework. So they try to like, if I've only ever covered clothing stores and this might differ from sector specialists and on wall street, but if I've only ever covered like grocery stores or sorry, like clothing stores. So like Quicksilver or zoomies or all these companies. Right. So I, what do I think of? I think of inventory. I think of, um, shrinkage. I think of four wall, four wall margins versus e-commerce. I think about all these things, but how does that compare against, um, a software as a service company or a home builder? It doesn't, they're just completely different business models. So on the weekends, even just read a bit of a 10 K just understand what, a, how a business works. That's my biggest piece of advice. Second biggest piece of advice is kind of tangential is focus on the unit economics. I think a lot of people, um, I haven't gotten much feedback on my like DCF stuff because I think people who watch me on Excel know that I know my, my stuff, but like it, for those of you that have done DCFs before, you'll notice I am given the stage of my career. Like I'm not modeling. Like I have people to model for me if I need it. Um, I'm overly simplistic on the three statement details. So, you know, I think like when you're first starting out, you really nerd out and like you really compete with each other by saying like, oh, well, I know this nuance of this contra account on the balance sheet or blah, 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 blah. But then at the end of the day, it's all about cash flows. And what really matters on the business where you, you where your investment is going to be right 99% of the time isn't so much did you get the discount rate right? Or well, maybe uh, I take that back. Did you get the networking capital percentage is right. Did you get, um, this asset, you know, is it marked to market or is it marked to, you know, privately marked all that stuff. The businesses are run on the thematic tailwinds to how well they're managed and how well they do within those tailwinds. And three, how good are the unit economics? So I obsess over unit economics. So even go back, to your microeconomics textbooks, like that's what I would say. Anyway, I've gone on on a rant. Anyway, we've got a lot of uh, a lot of voicemail questions. Let's. I'm gonna pick a thirty dollar winner early because I I forget a bunch of stuff and today seems a little more casual to me. Um, so I already picked the first weekly give the weekly giveaway of the week. You know, that was redundant. ONL, are you on? ONL, you won a hundred bucks. So if you if you didn't win this week. You can enter anytime over the next week and I'll pick it next week. Um, and then I'm going to pick one $30 winner. And if you haven't entered uh, link in the description, 32 $30 winners every show. So I'm going to pick one in right now. Um, also we do, you know, raffles time and time again on the newsletter. So sign up for the newsletter. Um, and again, I think I get caught in a lot of spam boxes. So check your spam box, add me to your contact list. Um, so we have 140 entrants for two winners. So you have, you know, one in 70 chance of winning 30 bucks right now. So let's, let's pick one. My internet's kind of slow. Dennis. I don't think this is the same Dennis that won before at some point in the past. Dennis, you won. I don't know. Like you didn't put a last name. So Dennis won. Cool. Awesome. Welcome. Welcome, welcome. Thursday, Thursday, Thursday. Hey, for, um, 
Yeah. So Hermberger's asking Amazon recently announced getting into podcasts. Does that change your view on Spotify, especially when they can bundle the service with their echo for a better experience? No, it doesn't. Not yet. Shot across shots across the bow. I don't think they're, I'll get worried when Amazon music surpasses Apple music. But right now the biggest threat to the game for Spotify is Apple music. And, and we have, um, and we have a lot of people here even that have tr- used both. It's the experience is just bad, right? Some, sometimes you just have to make the app better. So anyway, cool. Uh, Antonio, I, I saw you tweeted at me about, uh, Amazon's Peloton like machine. They actually d- disowned it. So what happened was this, uh, low tier brand called Echelon. And they even copy the colors of Peloton. They're called Echelon. Uh, let me let me show you. So let's compare Peloton and Echelon. Well, actually, let me pull up the news. So look, so Echelon released their Amazon bike or their bike that they said is is co-branded with Amazon. This is the Amazon Prime bike and they started calling it Prime bike. And then Amazon quickly disavowed this $500 Prime Prime bike because I think they, well, first of all, I think they went rogue, right? But Echelon, let me show you what Echelon is. Like, it's aimed at a much lower priced consumer. It's plastic, it's light, it's flimsy. They do uh, live studio classes, but you have to hook in your iPad, right? So that's that. Um, this company is a big copier company. So they do have their kind of competitor to Peloton, but you know, maybe a little bit too little too late at this point. And it's just, it's just a big knockoff. So generally knockoffs don't usually win, right? Here's another thing. So you know Lululemon bought Mirror, I think they basically copied the mirror. Look at this. These these guys, these people just copy all these products. Uh, it's, it's funny. Anyway, so that doesn't change my view on Peloton. Cool. Yeah, I mean, not only is it ugly, it's $500 and flimsy. What you have to understand is... The thesis on Peloton is, do you think that Pelotons can sell 20 million, um, 20 million, do you think there will be 20 million Peloton bikes in the world being used? If you think Tesla can sell 20 million cars a year, do you think that Peloton can have 20 million bikes being used out in the world, in the whole world, not even per year. Just do you think that there's 20 million Peloton bikes being used? Between between um I think between the US alone, but they're in Germany, they're in the UK. And then I know people, I, I hear from people in um, Sing, 
Singapore are like clamoring for it. I have some Singaporean people here. Like I, I think they, they can 20 million out of, okay, let's just say like there's whatever, six, seven billion, seven billion people in the world, right? Their aim, they're supposed to be the Ferrari of at-home uh, workout material, or at the very least, the Tesla Model S of it, right? That doesn't necessarily mean there can't be Nissan Leafs, right? Like, this is, the Echelon is the Nissan Leaf of, of at-home exercise equipment. Um, Peloton is the Tesla Model S, uh, ludicrous, or played, Right? Um, cool. That's my answer. Let's go, let's go to voicemail questions. I know I'm behind on these. Oh. Funny. You guys wouldn't believe how amateur my setup is. Hold on. All right. Hey, can you give me an example of your uh, portfolio in, in terms of what do you, what constitutes a growth stock versus a capital compounder versus a hedge or versus what, like what has to be checked off for that to be true? Thank you. Hey, yeah. So, um, a capital compounder is a company that compounds capital itself by itself uh every year it's reinvesting its cash flows into acquiring great synergistic companies into opening more stores opening everything right so that's an amazon google um facebook ish right facebook um because i think they have they still have high uh roi's on their customer acquisition costs but they are kind of peaking a bit um that's what a capital compounder is. So you believe in the business to compound its own capital, its own cash flows by themselves. Uh, a growth stock to me is an earlier stage company that, you know, potentially also could be a capital compounder. But to me, it's more of kind of a moonshot. If they can get to this big, they should be worth something in this vicinity. So like for a Peloton, if you if you are with me and you think that in the next 10 years there can be 20 million Peloton bikes out there, um, 10 to 20 million, you know, that could be a $150 stock worth now. But growth stocks don't have the moat and the monopolistic competitive advantages to me that a capital compounder does, and or at least the transformational abilities that a capital compounder does. And... Um, therefore I'm more willing to sell a growth stock when it hits sort of where I think is overvalued or fair market value versus Amazon could be 20% overvalued and you, you all be like, should we sell? Should we sell? Right. And the answer is no, because Amazon's going to be like, Amazon's going to be infiltrating homes with drones soon. Right. Uh, Amazon is uh, Apple to me is arguably a degrading capital compounder that may not be one in the future. 
I think they're topped out. I think a lot of the innovation can date back to Steve Jobs. I mean, sure, Apple Watches are cool and whatever, but they're playing from behind. And you saw the Fortnite news. Everyone's chipping away at their monopolistic abilities at this point. Um, so that's just the difference. I'll answer. I know you had four questions. I'll answer um, another one of yours and then move on. Uh, hold on. I called um, last live and you said I'm better off getting Salesforce instead of CoStar Group. Um, but I thought before you said Salesforce was overpriced and also this cloud computing is somewhat in a bubble. Um, is it still a buy? At what price would it be a buy? So if I were to consider that when would be the time and what valuation? Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So Salesforce versus uh, CoStar Group or Appfolio or any of these companies. Let's let's go to the desktop. All right. So I think now's a good time to buy. I, didn't I say if it got to 240, 245, maybe? I think that's what I said. I think I said that right about here. I think the day it spiked, I said, if it kind of gets to 240, 45 to 250, I forget exactly. But like, I think now is a good time to start dollar cost averaging into Salesforce. If you want exposure to business to business cloud, business to business software with 20-ish high teens, low 20s growth profile in a dominant business, the biggest B2B software company that's publicly traded. Um, so yeah, I would say now is a good time if any. Obviously be prepared to buy on the way down. Um, I, I definitely cautioned against buying after hype or after a great earnings report. Um, and yeah, the reason why I say I'm more comfortable with the CRM and I guess slightly with square, but less so with square in an overvalued, uh, bubble, I guess a cloud computing bubble is it's like Icarus. The higher you fly, the harder you fall. So just look at Nikola, right? Um, when when valuation gets a hundred times ahead of their skis versus two times ahead of their skis, you're just going to fall much harder, much faster. So if you buy at a hundred, that could go. You could lose two thirds of your money. Versus if you buy Salesforce at two forty, like the stock isn't going to me. To me, it's not going below two hundred, or maybe not below one seventy five, right? So your percentage of loss on your money is much lower, but your ability uh, to see share price appreciation to me is either higher or the same. Other than taking out hype aside, because I remember, and I'm honest with you and I'm honest with myself, my first Nikola video was saying, I would probably pass on Nikola at somewhere in the 30s per, per share. I said that, that was my first YouTube video that I just streamed live for like 30 minutes. Got a lot of hate from day traders. And then truly it spiked to like 90 bucks a share. So for sure, right? And then and then I issued a huge warning on TikTok. I issued warnings everywhere. I, you know, I, was, I was the one trying to pop that bubble. Obviously I'm not really like an influencer or big, but um, for those of you that listened and stayed away. Um, but look, if you had invested at 90 bucks a share on Nikola, you know, what is Nikola now? I don't even follow the stock anymore. 
19 bucks, 19 bucks a share. Nicholas, 19 bucks a share. I told you so. I love it. I hate saying I told you so, but I love it. I love it, right? So uh, like valuation matters in the long run. Was I wrong in like a one month period when there was all these like Robinhood traders pumping up this like small float stock? Yes, I, I was wrong in a month. Was I wrong from 90 when I started issuing real warnings? No, I mean like, right? Over time, fundamentals matter. And so there's just different types of hype, right? Nikola is one of those hypey stocks that reached the most hype that you could ever really imagine ever, right? How was Nikola, who's never seen a dollar of revenue really, worth more than Snapchat and Twitter and all these other companies? It's just dumb. Or how is it worth more than the suppliers they're partnering with? Or how is it worth more than like... Uh, big auto manufacturers just doesn't make any sense, right? So, so when you get it too far ahead of your skis, I would say when you look at like a Datadog or like a Fastly, they're very, or like a Snowflake, they're very ahead of their skis at this valuation. Um, Salesforce might be, might very well be, because at this point, I, I don't know what equity risk premiums are. I don't know what discount rate to use on my DCFs. So very well, maybe 10 to 20% over its skis. But it's better than being 500% over your skis. Does that make sense? Okay, cool. Yeah, so Antonio, if you bought it 30 bucks and you sold it 80 bucks, like, congrats. That's not something that you can really predict, right? It's just um, having fun at the casino. And as long as you realize that, then I'm good with it. Because I like casino bets too. I go to the casino. Um, cool, next one. Hey, Justin, I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, how much you like holding stocks in foreign markets and if you considered increasing that percentage based on your thoughts of a possible correction coming in. And then more specifically, what your thoughts are on the uh, India stock market, since I keep hearing about how much its potential for growth uh, just keeps coming up and if you know any specific stocks you like in it. Thanks. Um, I don't have any specific Indian stocks. I'll tell you right now. Let's see. The... Uh ETF. So if I look at iShares MSCI India ETF, I'm just, give me a sec. Okay. I, I thought I knew this, but I, I'm not, I'm not like an international macro guy. So sometimes I have to, like, I, I'm interested in a lot of that, but, um, let me show you here. Okay. Let me answer the first question. So the, the first question was, what do you think about international stocks? I believe that the United States has a unique, um, moat of our own and you know, Canadians here as well. So like, I, I just think that the United States has a unique moat controlling the world currency, the world reserve currency. There's a lot to it. Go look up like the dollar milkshake theory, all these other like macro theorists. I'm not a macro guy. So where I live and breathe and where I think innovation happens uh, is America because we have the system for it. And regardless of politics, uh, our sort of, Quali I guess, comparative, brutalistic, 
capitalism breeds innovation. Plus, like, there is a cultural difference with, Ameri with Americans, right? Like, I work around the clock. Like, we work on average way more and take way less vacations and are obsessive about certain things as Americans than a, um, you know, a UK person, a general UK. I'm making generalities here, right? Like, I, I have a lot of people that I've met from the UK who are very of the American work ethic mindset, but like, and vice versa. And it's not like labeling, but when you incentivize profits in a system, in a capitalist system, you breed innovation. So by that like basis, I am hyper-focused on American innovative companies, right? Um, secondly, I just think holding, the rever re like holding control of the reserve currency, being able to print your own money and print the world's money basically gives you a big moat around your economy. Um, and so that being said in a downturn, or there's a, there's a phrase right on wall street and elsewhere when America sneezes, the rest of the world gets, catches a cold. Um, that's why I invest in America almost, almost all, right. All of my portfolio is American stocks. Um, I consider Canadian stocks cause Canadian stocks are, have some tailwinds that have very much to do with the United States. Uh, and I will consider UK stocks. Uh, I've looked at a couple Australian stocks before, but have never actually made an investment in Australian stocks. There's just net. And also it's something about, I know American products. I know American trends. I know American consumers. So I'm going to have much more conviction around an Albertsons having grown up in California across the street from Albertsons. than I will investing in Sainsbury in the UK. Because I don't understand how Sainsbury um, interacts with their Aldi and Lidl's over there, right? So um, that's just like why I like, I mean, th there's a lot of reasons why I stick to the U.S. Okay, so moving on to what I think about international stocks. We've been hearing a lot about how international stocks are undervalued compared to U.S. stocks. There's a U.S. premium. There should, that should converge. That can, should converge. So let me show you. I've been hearing a lot about India's growth for two decades now more than two decades. I love India. I love India. I, I hope they become a world power economically, just like China has been able to will their way to it in two, two to three decades. Wish the best for them. Um, but look, this is like, this is a 10, uh, yeah, this is an eight year chart of the, of the India ETF. You're basically 40% up over eight years. Um, so, I mean, if you just divide, what, 40 divided by eight, right? That's like a 5% average annual return. Like, I don't know enough about India to believe that they're going to do any better than this. Okay. And when you compare it to like S&P 500, okay, let's go to the, let's go five-year chart, right? So you went from 2000 to, okay, so that's five years. So let's do the last, since 2012. Okay, this is really annoying.
I don't know what's going on with my browser. Okay, so if you go back to 2012, so 2012, you went from 1,100 on the S&P, and now you're at 3,200, okay? So you're telling me like you almost tripled in the United States stock market, and India is only up 40%? Yeah, like I, I just, I don't, I just, I just can't, especially not knowing the Indian economy or, you know, not knowing it or having high conviction in it or versus I can have high conviction in Amazon. I can have high conviction in, in like a Spotify Peloton. I can have high conviction in these U.S. stocks that I intimately know and intimately can value according to intimate U.S. laws, right? I mean, part of valuing a company is the inherent assumption that they live forever. So, which, which is, is the theory is like the terminal value on your discounted cash flow model. And a lot of embedded in that is US rules, US corporate tax rates, US bankruptcy laws, Delaware laws, right? Um, what's the ability to raise capital in the US, all this other stuff. So that's why, like, I'm just all that to say, I, I, I'm not explaining it perfectly tonight, but I just, you start with 100% U.S. stocks, even if you're not in the U.S. That's just my advice. Uh, my opinion's not advice. Um, even if you're Australian, if you're even you're, from, you're Brit um, or you're Canadian, I think you start with U.S. stocks, um, and then you can take bets outside. And where I do see a bet outside is I see this Cold War happening between the U.S. and the, and China. And when I mean Cold War, probably not in the same sense that we were in. With the USSR, it was it's probably like a tech cold war. So you're gonna start seeing these Chinese protocols, Chinese companies, um, and then you're gonna see the kind of the US versions that Silicon Valley has been running the internet so far. I know Europe's really pissed off about it. That's why you see all these antitrust things against Google and Facebook and all this stuff in Europe. But it, it's unlike Europe, China can do something about it, and they are doing something about it, and they have a culture of like technology. And, and developing technology, even if it is ripping off certain things, they have this own little culture and protocol of, of developing technology. One of the more innovative things to come out the, uh, in the past few years is TikTok. That's a Chinese company, ByteDance. I don't have the same faith in the, in the Eurozone. So the Eurozone can tell uh, San Francisco, so i.e. US-based rules, US-based internet, where the internet was invented, mind you, where is the COVID vaccine going to be invented? It's the United States. Um, they can say, they can poo poo it and be like, oh, well, we don't want you in our countries, but like, okay, like, what are you going to do about it? Europe, like Europe, Europe is not going to recreate Google, Facebook, Instagram, uh, or Apple, right? They're not going to do it. So So, hey, Joy X. Oh, nice to see you, Joy. Um, so her, her question is, how do you adjust your fundamental analysis to properly value the fast-growing tech industry? So it depends how early stage. Sorry. So if you're like a Nikola, right? I, I just use them. But if you're like a VC stage investment and you're like pre-revenue or you're like pre, vastly pre-profits, but you need to raise capital. But you've, uh, first of all, you look at, is the business model good? So when I'm looking at that like charge point deal today, that just announced they'd go public via SPAC. Before I would invest in that, I would want to know 
what their unit economics per charging station is, right? Which is something I deep dived into with Peloton. I said, per bike they sell, how much in economic profit do they get? So if the unit economics are good, meaning every time they install a charge point station or every time they sell a Peloton bike, they receive a 300% return over a five-year period. That means that they can spend shit ton of money on uh, marketing costs, customer acquisition costs, right? All that stuff. And so that's what we call return on invested capital, right? So they have capital, they need to raise capital, they reinvest it at a 3X return rate, right? So that's what you really want. That's the whole point of a business. Otherwise, just stick your money in a bank, right? Um, or buy some real estate and spit off rental cash flows. Um, so when you're earlier on, first you say, is this a viable business model? So that's why I was an outspoken, I mean, I wasn't doing this at the time, but I was an outspoken anti-scooter guy. Would never touch that with a 10-foot pole. So you're talking about the lime, lime scooters, bird scooters, all those. Like I loved riding them, but the unit economics never worked. They had to pay people to round them up every night and charge them. And for that price point, no, no, no. Their ROI was so bad. So that should be the first question. Is there individual, like, does this business model make sense? Or are they covering up a bad business model with marketing and money, right? Per thing they sell, software, hardware, what have you, what is the ROIC? What is the ROI on that? Once you're past that viable business model, we look at competition. Okay, so what's the chances they're, like who's the, the competition, right? And then you look at the total addressable market and realistic addressable market, right? So that's what we call TAM in Silicon Valley. It's like, how big is the industry and how much penetration in the industry do you think you can get? So like, if you think that the whole like electric vehicle market is 20 million a year and then it's stable, you know, how much of that market do you think that they can get, right? And then you kind of value it off that. So I would say, and it's also how long are you willing to wait? So if you're able to catch a company that is kind of hard to value on a multiple basis, I mean, you can do a DCF, but sometimes it's just really hard being so outdated, far dated. Um, you want to look at like what I like to look at, and you guys have known this. I like to look at enterprise value to gross profit because gross profit is really the profit that's going to be growing. Not obviously you're going to have negative earnings and negative EBITDA, for a long time, but gross profit should grow with revenues. So I want to look at like 2025 or five years out or 10 years out gross profit, and then see if the valuation makes sense today based on what it could be in 10 years or five years. I don't want to wait 10 years. So that's that. Also inherently it's much riskier. So it's like, it's much, much riskier. So go read Peter Thiel's zero to one. It's a really easy read. Um, he talks about the power rule and how like when you're a venture capital investor, you have to buy a ton of these things knowing like 90% of them are going to go to zero. So you invest a million dollars in like a hundred things and 90 of them are going to go to zero, right? You're, you lose a million dollars on 90 of them, but then like the 10%, they just take off. They find product market fit, which is what we were thinking about in the first step of this exercise. And then, um, they really like, like you'll have a hundred, 200 X or in a Facebook, right. Or something. And that'll make up for all the other losses and more, hopefully if you pick right. Uh, in my opinion, we don't ever get the look at the angel or the series a or B levels. We get the 
if you it, like for kind of accredited investors and again hopefully one day like my dream would be to raise a fund to to like invest in these pre-ipo startup kind of things um but if you're able to catch them there hopefully you're not investing 100 thinking 90 are gonna die or like die right hopefully you're investing in like uh maybe like 10 and you think like half of them might be busts or kind of waddle along, but the other half will be like three Xers or five Xers, maybe not 100, 500 Xers, but you know, that, that, that's how I would think about it. So you should definitely diversify. If you're like, I'm, I'm a high growth investor, you definitely diversify your bets because you're gonna be right on some things, you're gonna be wrong on some things. Yeah, Brian, the uh, the scooter companies are basically dead, in my opinion. All right, we have a couple more uh, voicemail questions. Let's get to it. Hey, I have around $3 million or so worth of stock and two inherited IRAs, and I have a paid-off house that I got. And so my net worth is a little shy of $4 million. It was well above $4 million, like, you know, three weeks ago. Um, I have yeah. a Costco and on Microsoft, Facebook, MasterCard, Google. I got some little bit of Apple, some ETFs. Um, when the market started falling, I was writing some covered calls. So I'm out of the money and then some at the money. I wrote some at the money on Q's, and I was, like, getting huge premiums, like, Eight dollars the premium for like two weeks out at the money calls, and that worked out pretty well. Um, but I've seen some huge swings in the last month, a couple months, and you know it felt good, but it was really up. And now when it goes down, I'm like, oh my gosh! And my, so my question is, how can I get a more stable portfolio? Because um, I don't want to take money out of my IRAs until I need to, um, because I have to pay taxes, right? And so I can't, I don't want to, you know, I'd like to put money in Fundrise or some of these other vehicles, but taxes. So how could I get a more uh, stable portfolio? I don't really understand bonds as well as I should. I hear they aren't that great, especially now. Um, and I have a 50000 or so uh, income outside of my IRA, like for mortgage stuff, I think. Gotcha. Okay, that's a really interesting. So how old are you? If you can call back or put in the chat, how old are you? Um, uh, I think that really matters. I don't like bonds where, just think about it, we're at record low interest rates. Um, so just to, just to recap, $3 million of stock worth uh, into inherited IRAs, uh, paid off house, uh, net worth of just shy of $4 million. Uh, but it sounds, and so he, you know, in Costco, uh, MasterCard, Microsoft, Facebook, Google, a little bit of Apple, and then ETFs. He was selling some covered calls um, when when the market was falling. Sounds sounds like a great move, I guess. Um, and then seeing some huge swings in the last month and a couple months really kind of felt good, um, but really craving a more stable portfolio. Um, he doesn't want to touch his IRA money um, until he needs to because he'll have to pay taxes on it and just I uh, don't know how much you need it right now. Um, 
but, and obviously would do, he said, do some vehicles like Fundrise and all these other things. How do you get a more stable portfolio? So this is really interesting. Uh, having a $50,000 or so income outside of this is really interesting because you're in a situation that is a little bit, that's flipped from what I think a lot of other people are in where a lot of people, especially people I've met through Roic, like, you know, software engineers or whatever, like we're highly compensated, but still young. So like our net worths aren't very high yet, or like, you know, their net worths aren't really high yet, but their earnings are high. So I think it's interesting that yours is flipped, right? So like, like I'm a little different because I think like I have a net worth that I'm happy with and I just, it's like, I'm not touching that until I'm like, right. And then I have a, I have a, um, like an, an earning stream for my job that I can uh, fund the lifestyle I want and save and keep investing, right? Versus I think I'm not really sure where you live or your cost of living, but if you want a stable portfolio that spits off cash to help augment a $50,000 income, because 50,000, uh, like I don't know if 50,000 is enough for you to live the lifestyle you want to. Again, I'm not promoting like buying fancy cars or anything, just whatever you're comfortable with. Um, then you might want to look towards some kind of income producing portfolio mechanisms as opposed to what we, what I am super bullish on. It's really um, transformational, long dated two to three deck or sorry, one to two decade type holds and just grow the crap out of it for a later date, right? That's that's generally what we talk about here on the channel. Um, but it's also like, when you're like, when I'm 60 and I don't wanna work anymore or whatever, I don't know if that's ever gonna happen, but if I ever don't wanna work anymore or I just wanna like work in the local whatever as a volunteer or whatever and, and take my income down, um, how do I stabilize my portfolio and get some income coming in every day, right? Or sorry, every month, every quarter, or whatever the distributions are. So I would say you'd be doing yourself a, a, a vast disservice by um, taking your portfolio down to less than half capital compounders. So I like Microsoft, like Facebook, like MasterCard. Costco is a great one. I would add in as much Amazon as you feel comfortable in there. Um, I would sell Apple, not a big, oh, I mean, they've, they're down, right? I would sell Apple. Um, and then, and then again, maybe, maybe you don't want to go to the strong growth or strong value stocks on the Roic big board, uh, because those are a little bit more like upside type oriented things, right? Like if, if now Albertsons, Albert, the whole point of Albertsons is to reach a target price of 25, right? Uh, so what are they now? They're 1338, right? So it's just one of those things like it could be a double, but it's also, you're going to see whipsawing on it. Um, what you might want to augment is you take that 20% of your portfolio that I have in real estate. Um, and you maybe take it up, you take it up 25, 35, 40% of your investment portfolio and Again, I don't think now's the time to go buy your own private real estate just because the supply demand inventory dynamics are just so unfavorable. Uh, Fundrise is a great way to do it because like 
you know, they're going to be giving you stable distributions and dividends that are higher than a dividend company, right? So if you, a lot of like the traditional wisdom is go buy some stable dividend stocks like Coca-Cola, Philip Morris, all these things, right? Um, but they're like, if I go to Coca-Cola right now, let's, let's look together. Coca-Cola. All right. If you go to Coca-Cola Co, Co Coca-Cola Co, um, their dividend yield is like three and a half percent. You're going to get a much higher dividend yield through a fund rise and higher than fund rise. If you do it yourself, probably if you buy right, but it's a lot of work, right? Um, so I would go that direction. Don't buy bonds. Why would you buy a bond that yields two to 3% and is only going to go down when rates go up? So don't buy bonds. Don't buy bonds. For now, I would stay conservative. If you believe, like me, that there's more downside to this market, sell off some of your stocks. It said sell off some of your Apple um, and keep some cash. Uh, I would also, yeah, so my whole point is take that 20% real estate allocation. Let's see. So this real estate allocation might actually look like half of your portfolio, right? So because it's stable, it's diversified, it's U.S. real estate, and uh, it's going to spit off cash flows every quarter that you can live on, you can reinvest it if you want to, or you can use it to augment your lifestyle. But I don't think that you should eschew or spurn these compounders that will be transformational wealth building, right? Because let's be honest, right? Like if you invested, you know, if you, if you reach a net worth of 10 million at some point in the future, you sound young, um, you know, and then you invest in uh, a, you know, a CD or whatever that yield two or 3%, then you're going to be getting 200 to 300,000 a year just you know, just by doing nothing, right? Or you can invest in stocks and uh, expect a 7% return minus 2% inflation, take out four or 5% and, and yield four or $500,000 a year. So the point is to get there then, but you're not there yet, right? You still have to kind of double your money. And so if you only go, if you, if you scale back all the way to the defensive, if you're young and you don't need it and you don't need that, need it for your lifestyle, what I would say is like, yeah, like feel free to take this real estate portion. And again, Fundrise is a great vehicle. Do your own research. Like I just, I, I believe in it. I don't think you should put all your all your eggs in one basket in any sense. Um, go find that kind of stuff or go find people that are investing real estate um, like me, but that are accepting capital at this point. Um, and then take this up to maybe like 40%, this brown, spot, brown slice to like 40% and let it spit off cash flows for yourself. Um, cool. Hey, and Elias, uh, a compounder is what we refer to as a company um, that has high returns on invested capital, which basically means that that company has the ability and moat and monopolistic competitive advantages to go invest their cash into projects that will triple their money. 
So when the company triples their money, they triple their money for you. And then once they triple their money, that all that cash gets to be invested back into triple X projects. So when you see Amazon investing in, um, in drones in the house, they're going to see high ROICs on that stuff. Uh, they, they see high lifetime values for Amazon prime, uh, members, like all these things. So the difference between a compounder and, and everything else is that compounders have a unique competitive advantage to invest at high, really high rates themselves. Um, and if you can grab onto one of them and own some of them, then they'll just keep reinvesting and reinvesting at high rates and get exponential growth over time. Does that make sense? Hopefully, I'm a little scatterbrained today. Hopefully, uh, some of this is making sense. Uh, song, do I need cheap labor for 10 to 15 bucks an hour? Um, it depends on, uh, depends on skill set. De depends on skill set. Pro maybe, probably. I've never been a fan of bonds for multitude of reasons. I don't like bonds. Stay away from bonds, even if you're old. I would rather de-risk by going cash, honestly. Because I think what people don't understand is life's long unless you get hit by a bus. Knock on wood, right? You're going to outperform with stocks if you don't, if you, if you buy, um, if you buy, hold on, I'm hiding a spam message. If you buy right and you don't buy overvalued stocks, or if you just buy the compounders that are obvious, right? Like Amazon, just obvious. Like you can hate them ethically or whatever, but it's just obvious. Um, you're going to outperform. But Mr. Market's going to slap you in the face sometimes. Like this year, but not even this year, right? So... If you get a 7% return on stocks, right? You can always sell some and use that cash at a cap gains tax rate. But if you own a bond that comes in at income tax rate, which is higher, and you're going to underperform, and the value of your bonds can go down, and I think you don't realize that with the interest rates. And now, the interest rates, like no one knows where interest rates are going to be, right? So if you really want, like my whole thing is, generational multi-decade growth go with capital compounders and overlay that with you know what i do i've done professionally is find growth and value stocks that have a one to three year thesis and then buy them on the upswing double your money and sell them but you need a lot of skill to do that and that's why i'm here right is to gut check you and also do some analysis for you and find some stocks for you um my opinion's not advice. Uh, and the other way is I don't like bonds. And if, you, if you're scared of the stock market being frothy, which I kind of am, you sell off some of your stocks for cash, right? And if you want income coming in every through the door, diversified real estate's a great way to do it or just concentrated real estate in a city that is seeing tailwinds. We're talking about Austin, Nashville, um, Tampa, Charlotte, uh, Raleigh, Durham, Phoenix, San Antonio, Dallas, 
and, and a handful of more, right? I don't want to, I don't, I'm not buying Detroit real estate. And if you're there, you know, I, I don't like to pull my hair over being wrong. The less you have to be right about, the better the investment. So what I, what I like to boil it down to is I figured out Peloton's unit economics detailed enough to know if you think that there will be 20 million Peloton bikes in the world in the next decade, it's slam dunk. It's probably a $150 to $200 stock. So what do you need to be right about? You need to be right about the fact that bougie people who want to work out at home are buying Pelotons. Yes or no? So you got to be right about. If I have to be right about a real estate investment, I have to like, I have to to understand the uh, occupancy and vacancy rates well enough in a specific neighborhood. I have to be right about construction quality and repairs. I have to be right about tenant quality and churn. I have to I have to worry about uh, my lease being good and if they if they ruin the house, can I sue them? All this other stuff. I have to be right about a bunch of stuff. I also don't want to have to worry. Oh, and obviously, most importantly, I have to worry about, did I buy it at a right price for the rent that I'm going to get to get a good yield, which we call cap rate. Um, I don't want to have to be right about, is Detroit going to turn around? So as we talk about real estate, you either go diversified, which means to me, the best is Fundrise, if you don't want to worry about it, or you buy your own, or you find folks like me that have a fund, like a new fund kind of starting and that are taking outside capital and you go invest with them. But you have, again, that stuff is like, you really have to trust those people. Really have to trust those people. Like it's kind of one of those things. It's like the more you learn and the more you know, the more you know how much you don't know and the more you know how much other people are talking out of their own ass. So like the more you kind of learn, the more you are, you, you know, the more distrustful of other people you should be. So like, like, I mean, the first thing I would say to you is like, if you met someone like a me, like me, and, and they were like, yeah, like you want to invest with me, right? First thing I would tell you, even if it was me staring you in the face, would be like, be super skeptical, be locked tight on the legal agreements and um, just be really skeptical. Like think, always think, how is this guy screwing me? How is this stock going to screw me? Where is my thesis going to go wrong? If I buy Tesla, how can Elon Musk go wrong? I always think about that. You hope for the best, prepare for the worst, right? And that's how I treat people. That's how I treat investments. That I, that's honestly how I treat life is prepare for the worst and call me a Boy Scout because I am a Boy Scout. Fun fact, I'm an Eagle Scout. Um, yeah. For better, for worse. Uh, hope for the best and prepare for the worst but I'm always preparing for the worst. I'm hoping for the best. I'm not like a, a grouchy old pessimist, but sometimes I can be. But always be careful. So that's why real estate... Anyway, I, I'm on a tangent and a diatribe here, but I would say stability er, income earnings is diversified or concentrated real estate to me, private real estate, because REITs trade with low dividend yields. Um, and then growth in your wealth over decade or two is compounding stocks. And then conservatism is cash. Three-pronged approach.
Hey, uh, Ben, uh, why sell Apple? So let's look at Apple again. So I was telling, I was telling you all, for those of you that have been with me for a while, I was telling you all, hold on. I was telling you all to sell Apple. Let's go to the, let's go to this. Do you guys remember this? Like you guys, like you all can audit me by the way, because I have my newsletters. You can go look at your inbox and like, I, I say these things in real time, right? Um, I was telling people to sell Apple up here. I'm actually kind of surprised because I'm the first to admit, like I'm not a market predictor. I just know when things are expensive and when things are cheap. And so I was telling like, this is too overpriced. So as of now at 108 bucks a share and not 129, and I know they did a stock split um, since then. They're trading at 20 times forward EBITDA. Um, so the reason why I told, said to sell Apple at that point is one, I don't think they have the capital compounding abilities that Amazon and Google have. Amazon and Google are actively waging war to inf infiltrate your home. The internet of things, all these things, right? They're infiltrating. These are all high heroic things because they know once they're in their home, you're in your home and they listen to you talk, eating dinner, they can serve you up so much stuff to buy. They can serve you so many ads and your, their customer lifetime value from you, not only on the stuff that you, that you're not only on the stuff that you're, um, like buying from them, but just what they can serve to you later is just a really high, right? So I, I'm, again, I'm going on a, oh, wow, it's 909. I got to go. <laughs> um, anyway, all that to say, Apple is running into zero growth. They have reached the zenith on iPhones. They're struggling to find new growth avenues. They make a ton of cash, but they can't find growth avenues and they're getting their monopoly chipped away. I don't like it. I almost downgrade them from capital compounder almost to cash cow. I treat Apple now as a cash cow. And when I want to buy cash cow at 15 times forward gross profit and 20 times EV to EBITDA versus I, that's the same valuation conceptually as Square, which is a high growth stock at 15 times forward gross profit, or comparing it against Amazon, everything comes at an opportunity cost. I gotta go soon. I'm sorry, I went over. I've been scatterbrained today. Um, so yeah, and so you can buy Amazon at eight times forward gross profit and similar times EBITDA, even though we know they take their EBITDA way down to reinvest in the business, Amazon all day long. And you all know Apple was my first love. And I'll leave it at that. Cool. Thank you, everyone. I've gone over. I'm going to get an earful from my wife when I get home. Um, but thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you. And the best thing you can do to support the content is if you don't want to join Roic and still kind of have the target asset allocations for free and uh, just watch my videos and like, like them and subscribe and tell your friends about the newsletter. Growing the newsletter will be, be pretty cool and open them. That really matters, like the open rate. So I appreciate it. Thank you so much. If you're on Roic, just DM me. I, I, I get back to them in a week and appreciate it. So the last winner of $30 is...
So the first winner was Dennis. He won 30 bucks today. And the second $30 winner today is Dylan Z. Dylan Z from the 50th state in the union, if I'm not correct, if I'm not mistaken. Thank you, everyone. Yeah, David, uh, Dylan Z from our 50th state in the union. Thank you. Appreciate it. Have a great night. Have a great weekend. I'll see you next week.